following teaching is from the 2013 All In Men's Conference at Camp Choye. We hope it's a blessing to you. For more information about the men's ministry at Houston's First Baptist Church, you can visit us on the web at houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. robbing all the banks in the little villages. Every chance he got, he'd uh, take his little band of guys and upscound them the money. When the local posse finally got around to chase him, he'd just wait for them at the Rio Grande River. He'd run across the Rio Grande River, stop on the other side, and he knew that all the local law enforcement couldn't chase him. He'd just wave, and he'd ride off laughing with all his band of outlaws. Well, finally, he uh, came across the uh, Rio Grande River, tried to rob a, a bank, cabin him with a bunch of money, but the Texans by then were all fed up with what was going on. So they sent a special group of guys to hunt down Pancho Villa. And so they robbed the bank. They were running right after them. And when they got to the Old Grand River, they did not stop. They went right across the river because they were the Texas Rangers. Pancho <laughs> was shocked. He was surprised. He ran to the closest town he could find for cover. He was battling it out with the Texas Rangers. They were shooting and blasting everything away. Most of the men from Poncho were already shot or wounded, killed or wounded. And so finally, the Texas Ranger captain called for a ceasefire. He shouted out, Poncho, we've got you surrounded and you're the only one left. Tell us where the money is and we'll let you live. If you don't tell us where the money is, we're going to fill you full of holes. Well, Poncho shouts out in, in Spanish, and then the bartender where the captain was says, I'm sorry, senor, but uh, Pancho, he does not speak English, but I'll be happy to translate for you. So the captain says, okay, tell him. You tell us where the money is, we let you live. You don't tell us where the money is, we'll fill you full of holes. So Pancho shouts out in perfect Spanish. Go to the south end of town to where the well is. Three bricks down, you pull it out on the south side. Hollow. All the money's in there. And then the captain says to the bartender, so what did Pancho say? Bartender thoughts for a moment. Pancho says, go ahead and shoot. I'll never tell you where the money is. <laughs> there is a bartender whose name we don't know understood what opportunity was all about. <laughs> and when it came, he took it. He sensed the possibility that he could make it. One of my great mentors told me very early on in the lives that we shared together is he shared great nuggets of fruit. He says, fruits, opportunities will always be there. But how we respond to those opportunities makes the difference in how we as men respond to this world. Some will be opportunity breakers. An opportunity will come, they will hesitate. They will be afraid. They will not take the steps necessary to embrace it. There are others who are not just opportunity breakers, but they are opportunity takers. When they see something come that's an opportunity, they'll grab it, they'll grasp it, they'll accept it as an opportunity given to them by Almighty God in His sovereign ways, and they see advantages in doing it. But he says there's another possibility that you can do, and that is an opportunity maker. Trust God to use you the circumstances and relationships you have to go out and make things happen. Don't just live and exist and then wait for things to come. Go out and take it. And never lose the passion as an opportunity maker to have an initiative in your spirit to go off and find those things that God can do 
for you. Opportunity breaker, opportunity taker, opportunity maker. We who believe in Almighty God and His sovereign ways, when He controls circumstances, gives us gifts. When He determines our relationships, determines the situations that we are in, He then works through us by His Spirit, arranging all these things for us to take the initiative as man to get things done. I am very convinced that probably all of us in this room, probably most of us at least, have been in a fight sometime in our life. Uh, one way or another. Some kind of fight. And we all know that when you're in a fight, very rarely do you ever leave unscathed. Well, I'm a martial artist. I have been for many years. Retired a long time ago. Too many injuries. I mean, I study martial arts, right? I mean, Asian, name is Bruce. <laughs> uh, there's, there's an opportunity that I had to make. <laughs> and I, I remember being in the dojo, and one of our finest fighters was beating everyone, and I never had a chance to score off them. One after another, our sensei was calling them up from our do dojo to fight this guy and spar him on, on the mat. I knew my time was coming, so I studied and I watched and I observed. One of the most amazing things about this incredible fighter was that everything he did was counterpunching. He was a counterpuncher. He'd wait for his opponent to throw something, to kick something, to do something, to move, to shift. And he'd respond and react and then look for a weakness. And once he found a weakness, he'd always exploit it. Time and time again, I saw opponent after opponent get up there and they were all scared to death because they knew they were going to get beat. And so when they knew they were going to get beat, they just said, oh, well, just go for it. And they went launched themselves into it. And that fighter received whatever they threw. He counterpunched that individual <coughs> in the ring. <clears throat> Finally, my time came, and I decided one thing. In this battle with this champion in our dojo, I knew that I would get hit. And I knew that when I got hit, it would hurt but I knew that I decided before I got hit and before I felt the pain, I would not stop. Every other fighter who lost any match that I'd seen, every time they got hit and every time they felt the pain, that's when they quit. They stopped because of the pain. I stood there across from this gentleman, I stared him right in the eye, that thousand-yard stare that he returned without any hesitation. I was terrified, but I wasn't going to let him know that. I thought there's probably a very good chance I'm going to lose this, but I'm not going to let him know that in advance. He is not going to win before the sensei said he was champion. When the sensei shouted that word, kumite, which is fight, I launched as fast as I could from my starting line with a front snap kick, followed by a roundhouse kick. He blocked them both. It was amazing how fast he was. When I dropped my right leg from the roundhouse kick, I threw a straight-on punch right for his solar plate. He blocked it to his right to my left. Then I did a round, I did an overhand ridge and and all of a sudden my left hand was blocked, my ridge hand was going like this. What do you see? <laughs> open target. As soon as he saw that open target, I realized what I had done and what he had done. And that foot on a reverse kick came in so fast. And his heel hit me right in the solar plexus. And I almost felt all the wind going out from my lungs. And the pain, I could still feel the pain right now as I think about it, <laughs> as I did at that moment. 
I also remember the decision I had made before I stepped onto that mat. I would not let that pain cause me to quit. <clears throat> Instead, a fury fused through my eyes as I stared right in the eyes of my opponent. And instead of falling back with his kick, I kept pressing forward. I don't know if he's ever felt that before. Launching his most powerful reverse kick and have him be buckled and being pushed backward by his opponent. I felt the pain, but I didn't want him to see it. All I wanted him to see was my anger and my fury that I would not stop. I knocked his leg from off my chest and went with a straight-on punch that hit him right in the shoulder. And he spun around and lost his balance for the very first time in that match, first time I ever seen him do that. He actually fell out of the fighting ring. And he stood there, buckled over, looking up at me, and then he looked down. For the first time, he broke eye contact with me. The sensei ran up and said, get back in there! And the guy shook his head. The sensei, get back in there and finish the fight. And the guy shook his head. Said, What's wrong? And he whispered to the sensei, I'm afraid. <laughs> it was a high point of my life. I could have gone to heaven. <laughs> There's something amazing that God has placed in every single one of us as men. And that's a missionary. Doesn't matter how tall we are, how wide we are, how short we are. It doesn't matter what we look like, what we do, how smart we are, how not so smart we are. The one thing we share in common is that we, as individuals, have this amazing phenomenon that God's placed in us, and that is initiative. And the world tries to beat it down. Satan tries to make us afraid. And because of our past mistakes, we choose to hesitate whenever there's a chance to make opportunities happen. And when we lose a sense of initiative, we don't make opportunities. Sometimes we take them. God throws it in our lap and pushes our face in it. Sometimes we take them. But so many times we become opportunity breakers. Simply because the world has made us afraid. Our flesh has made us make bad decisions and in our baggage, we're thinking to ourselves, if anyone finds out about this, I'm going to be a humiliation to myself, my family, and to my church. So we don't take those opportunities. If the world and our flesh and Satan cause us to lose the initiative that God has placed in us, opportunities will go by. When I think about us as warriors, as men, there's something very special about this whole idea of what the scriptures seem to suggest. First <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 13 one of the things that's very, very important is that we as men take on this particular scripture with a very special emphasis with our families, with our wives, with our children. Those who love and love biblically will always protect those that God has given us the responsibility to watch over. We are, by definition, as men, we are protected. And those that we protect, we are willing to stand in the place or we will be between those that we love and the danger that threatens them, even if it costs us our own life. If it costs us our own safety, we do that because that's how God has made us. If we hesitate, we are afraid. If we reluctantly take that responsibility and pause, and then those that we love get hurt, we have failed in a very important responsibility, an opportunity that God has given us 
as protectors. <clears throat> now we are the protectors, but we are also providers. First Timothy chapter 5, God is speaking to Timothy, teaching Timothy how men are supposed to respond in, re- in this relationship with family, and we are the ones who take the initiative to make sure that our family members, that God has blessed us with, are cared for. I'm tired of working in ministry where I have to work and face down fathers who are not taking the responsibility with their kids. Deadbeat husbands. I'm tired of facing those guys. I've heard all the excuses, and it's amazing how well they convince themselves with words that maybe it's not as bad as it seems. They're shirking their duty. We as men have to go back in the scriptures and realize we're protectors and we are providers. Not only are we protectors and providers, but we also are pioneers. We don't just wait for things to happen and react. We don't just wait for things to occur and then try to fix. We anticipate. We take new ground. We have a vision about life, and we keep on pressing ahead. One of the most amazing things that we can think about in relationship to Scripture is all these issues that are at hand. I'm new to Houston. We moved here, my wife and I, uh, July, uh, July of last year in 2012. And one of the things that we asked God to do for us is to give us a love for Houston. And we have a lot of friends who laughed at us when they, we told them we were moving to Houston. They, the reaction's all the same. Houston? <laughs> people leave Houston. People don't move to Houston. <laughs> we said, well, God led us there. And so when we got here, that was one of the things we wanted to do. We wanted to pray that God would give us a love for this city. One of the most amazing things that I learned about Houston and realized what was happening, there's something very special about our city. One of the most amazing things is in the United States, it is the fastest growing city in the entire country. Over the last 10 years, from 2000 to 2010, the population of this city has absolutely exploded. When I look at the growth population of the city, 2.13 million people have moved here in the last 10 years. Now, if you think about the numbers that that relates to, that's 213,000 people per year. And when you put that down to something manageable, over 17,000 people are moving to the city of Houston every single month. Now, that number might make us uh, really proud to say, yeah, I live in a huge city, and and we're, we're a classy city. We're a city that people should really be living because a lot of people are moving here. But we want to look at it differently as individuals. What is the opportunity that we can make because of what God is doing to bring people here? One of the things that we know is that church planners tell us that for every 1,000 to 2,000 people, you need a new church. Now, if you figure that, that that, that gives to us an amazing sense that anywhere from 8 to 17 new churches need to be planted in Houston just to keep up with the current population. That's not to get ahead. That's just to keep up. And still thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people don't know the Jesus Christ that we know. And even haven't heard heard of him. So we as a group of men are thinking to ourselves, okay, uh, be be more than just proud of our city and the amazing, phenomenal growth of the city. What can we do as followers of Jesus Christ to make a difference for eternity, for the kingdom? In that particular sense, I think that we have something that we can all agree on. We can agree with Forbes when it says Houston is America's next great global city. Not just great American city. They have identified it as the great next great global city on the third coast of the Gulf Coast of Mexico. 
Now, can you imagine here that the world is actually giving us a vision for what God can do to the city of Houston? It is absolutely phenomenal. And not only is uh, Houston a great global city because of all of the, the oil, obviously, that flowing out and the finance that comes as a result of that, but the growth for Houston in the near future is not going to stop. In fact, it's going to expand. For most of you, you didn't realize probably that in 2010 there was a, a, a tremendous shift in maritime history. In the evening and dark, when everyone was off in bed already, a ship docked in Long Beach, California. It was the largest container ship ever built that ever sailed across the Pacific today. It was four times larger than any other container ship that had ever sailed the seas. And it stopped in Long Beach because it couldn't go any further. The Panama Canal is too small for these great container ships to pass through. So they have to put everything on rail which is an efficient way to do it if you only got a little bit of stuff and a little ways to go. But if you got a long ways to go, that's a lot of money to shift product and produce that comes all the way from the middle, all the way from the Far East, spreading all across North America. But amazing thing is that in 2015, the Panama Canal is going to reopen after it's doubled in its size and capacity to pass through shipping product. It's increasing by twice for the purpose of making sure that these amazing container ships no longer have to stop on the West Coast. They can sail right through, and there's three great cities that are vying for all of that product. New York, New Orleans, and Houston. Houston today is being built so it can handle twice the capacity of commerce. Can you imagine that happening in 2015? There's a lot of other cities that want all that product to come in their ports. Because Houston is so big, growing so fast, and the greatest GNP growth in the entire United States, what are the shippers going to say to themselves? Where should we dock and download all our stuff that people can take this and distribute it as quickly as possible to as many consumers as they possibly can? I don't know about you, but I sure would look pretty seriously and very hard at the city of Houston. One of the most amazing things is that we're growing now by 17,000 people a month. What's going to happen when all that commerce comes into our port? There is an opportunity to do something for the kingdom of God in the city of Houston like we've never experienced before. One of my uh, wonderful uh, contacts here in the city when I came was having uh, lunch with uh, Pastor Ed Young at Second Baptist Church. And some people kind of make fun of him because all they do is growing. Well, I thought that was a good thing. <laughs> and, and they're growing because of people coming to know Christ. And I went to visit the church once, and they had uh, these uh, video screens all around the stage. And they don't stop to have a person share their testimony when they get baptized because they have too many. So they just have this rolling tape of all these different people who've been baptized that week going on. And uh, Pastor Pastor uh, Ed Young, he was he was telling me, he said, yeah, you know our entire team together and we put up this map of the city of Houston and we had a little red dot for everyone who's a member of our church and we put it up there and man there's a little lot of red on that map and everyone started applauding and I looked at him and I waved him off and I and, and, and Dr. Young said to his staff he said I know that you're applauding for all the red and praise God for all that every one of these people is born again but you know what breaks my heart today is all the white still on there 
He says, I know that we're at 50,000 people. My burden is before God, let's trust him for 100,000 people. Not because we're after the numbers, but we're after every single soul to come to know Jesus Christ as a personal savior. And today, because of that tremendous goal, there are over 65,000 people now at Second Baptist. And when he talks about Pastor Gray, he says, Pastor Gray is a fantastic pastor. He's the next generation, has a passion and a heart for the city. And Houston's first, he says, God is doing so many great things there. I'm so excited that we're both here in the city. And we're a part of that. A huge opportunity for us. And here's a passage of scripture that I think can give to us some idea of how to make all this manageable for us. In Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, verses 3 and following, this is what the scripture says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard. That's just the first verse of this passage of Scripture, and uh, first part of verse 4. When I look at this passage of Scripture, there are several things that seem to stand out. But when the Apostle Paul writes here that we, and one of the individuals are doing this, it's Paul and Timothy, as we see in the first three verses of this, uh, first two verses of this passage of Scripture. The authority of the Apostle are now going to respond as he prays for the lives of people at an amazing church. There's really only two churches in the New Testament that are pretty special from the standpoint of Paul being really blessed because of the lives of their spiritual growth of the people. Thessalonica and Colossae. Two very special groups of people. You bring up, well, what about the Corinthians? <laughs> Those guys are messing up over and over and over again. Oh, well, what about this church? Well, they're good, they're good. But the ones where the Apostle Paul and Timothy not only saw that the lives of these individual Christians were were doing well, but they encouraged him because of their amazing example of spiritual growth. And that's what this passage of Scripture is all about when he says, when we pray for you, we always thank. We are always grateful. Thanksgiving is on our spirit when we go before the Father to pray for you. And that means that there's something positive going on in the lives of these Christians. One of the things about uh, this passage of Scripture, theologically, that we see is that Jesus Christ is not just put there as a perfunctory addition, but instead he's given equal status with the Father, so that the divinity of Jesus Christ is without question a part of our conviction and truth. I don't know if uh, you, you guys realize how blessed we are here, Pastor Greg, but he's not only a really good communicator, he knows his theology. When I sit there and I listen to his messages, I'm always smiling, running down notes. I'm thinking to myself, boy, this guy is bright. He's teaching us theology without getting us distracted with all the information, but implanting it so that it makes a difference in how we live our lives. We are greatly blessed that things like this never pass over his thinking. The goal is trying to incorporate it without distracting from the primary objective of the passage. And when we are here as men, looking at passages of scripture like this, the deity of Jesus Christ is very, very prominent. And we get a chance to pause and think about it in a little more special way. So the Apostle Paul and the other Apostle Timothy are now going to pray for these believers. And some of us will look at a passage of scripture like this, and I know it's a little common. People will read Colossians 1 and say, well, prayer is a very common feature in a relationship to this whole business of what it's like to be spiritual. But don't forget who's doing the praying and who's being prayed for. It's the apostles 
And they are praying for the Colossian believers. They are the objects of the prayer of the apostles. Who's praying for us? Very good. And, and we want the Holy Spirit to pray for us, and he's a very much a part of all the dynamic. That's a great theological foundation. Did you go to seminary? Ah, you want to go to seminary? I know a really good one. <laughs> but the question would be, you know, is Pastor Greg praying for us? Are the deacons praying for us? Are the spiritual leaders of Houston first praying for us? Most of us will say, well, uh, they don't even know me. They don't even know my name. If I walked by, they, they wouldn't know if I came here as a visitor or if I'd been here for 30 years. But it's not prayer based upon familiarity. It's prayer based upon faith being expressed out of our lives. Why Paul and Timothy are praying for these Colossian believers is very clearly stated. Because they have heard about faith and love being expressed out of the lives of these Colossian believers. I guarantee us, gentlemen, if we live a life that's activated by faith and by love, ministering as individuals who are followers of Christ through the ministry of Houston First, eventually the leadership of the church will hear about it. And they would maybe not know us by name. Maybe they won't be taking us out to lunch. Maybe they don't have us our picture on their refrigerator. But, but because we live by faith and act out of love, they will hear about the lives that we, by God's grace and by spirit, are teaching. And then they start to pray for us because they say, wow, do you hear what God's doing through the lives of some of our men? I haven't even met these guys. Man, we're going to pray for them. And when we pray for them, it's not, God, please, cause them to repent and sin. God, please, help them because they've really got some real real blind spots that they're missing. But instead, they're going to be praying and say, God, thank you so much for the lives of these men for living by faith and living out love and then doing exactly what you have called us to do to shepherd them to do, and they're doing it. You're blessing their ministries. And we don't even know their name, God, but we thank you for them. What an amazing list to be on. It's a grateful list of pastors who pray for the people that God is using here at Houston's First. What we're talking about here is reactive prayer. One of those amazing things when we think about prayer that causes an individual who is a shepherd of God, here in this case an apostle, here in our case our pastors who are eating, causing them to react in prayer because they've heard about what we are doing in the name of Jesus Christ through prayer, through faith, and through love. What an amazing phenomenon that is. Uh, my family and I were in Michigan for 11 years, and we were praying that God would take us to California because we'd heard that my Dad's cancer had returned. And I remember praying that in 2008 and saying, God, I've never asked you to take us to a geographical location ever before. But you know my heart is with my dad, and my dad doesn't know you, doesn't know your son, and I would love for us somehow to be there, but you've got to finish up this ministry and release us and take us there to another ministry. I know that's a lot to ask, and only you can orchestrate something like that. Well, amazingly enough, the next year in 2009, God opened up for us the opportunity to leave the ministry in Michigan and to do a transition ministry that prepared us for the switch. 
to go from leading a seminary in Michigan to going to, back to pastoring in San Francisco. I thought, well, that's pretty close, Lord. I, my dad's in Sacramento, and that's an hour and a half drive, so that's not bad. And then when we accepted the ministry in San Francisco, I found out that my dad's treatment was all being done in San Francisco. But God knew better than me, and he realized that, boy, you, Bruce, you're praying for the wrong geographical city, kind of generally geographical area. Bruce, you've got it sort of right, but I'll make it better even than you asked for. So we were back for the last three and a half months of my dad's life, we were able to, to witness to him. We still don't know if, he, if he's with the Lord or not. He was very stubborn, just like my mom, but, boy, what a great chance when he told my sister, so glad that Bruce and his family are back. And if you don't know anything about us Asians, that, that was a lot of emotion expressed there. But that was about the extent of the emotion expressed in our entire relationship. I'm sure glad Bruce and his family are back. And I'm, I'm glad he said that because I memorized it. I'm glad that Bruce and his family are back. And we were able to share with him uh, the gospel, share with him a Bible, share with him scripture, be, be there with him almost every other day during his last few few months in Battle of the When he went, went and passed on and and my family, oh, okay, now we're here, and what do we do now? And I guess we just continue ministry. About a month after that, my youngest son, who was uh, had just accepted a position uh, in, a, in a, a physician assistant school in Oakland, California, right across the bay, he was there for about a month in school, and he came over to our place for dinner. He said, you know, Dad, I have this weird kind of sensation. It's like my left arm goes numb, and I can't have feeling in my fingers. Well, man, you better go get that checked out. And he says, okay. So he went to the, since he was a PA student, he went to the hospital that was related to the school. And they had a neurosurgeon who examined him and said, wow, uh, we'll do some tests. They did some tests. And then they came up with this diagnosis that he has something called a Chiari malformation. That means his brain skull stopped growing and his brain kept growing. And his brain skull was too small for his brain. So as a result of that, the brain was pushing down on the back part of the opening of the skull and pressing against his spinal cord and causing a cyst to form, which is cutting off some of the some of the nerves. And he likes to tell it that his brain was too big for his head, but <laughs> most of us realize, well, okay, I suppose it's, you're the one with the malady. Well, let you humor yourself. <laughs> so the, I said, well, what did the neurosurgeon say? He says, well, he thinks that we should go in there and cut out the cyst. And so here I'm thinking to myself, hey, I'm a layman, but scalpel, sharp knife, spinal cord, huh, I think we need a second opinion. So I called my brother up, who happens to practice in San Francisco, and he's an orthopedic surgeon. And he says, wow, he says, you know, I've got a friend who I went to medical school with. He's practicing here at the University of San Francisco, and uh, he's, a, he's a neurosurgeon, in fact, one of the best in the country. In fact, what you call it? I said it's Chiari malformation. He says, oh, yeah, he specializes in the Chiari malformation. In fact, he's one of only three in the United States who, who specializes in the Chiari malformation. So since he was a friend of my brother's, he got my son, his nephew, up to the front of the line, and he did the examination, looked at everything, says, oh, yeah, no problem, I do this all the time. Uh, you're you're going to have to cut it out. He says, oh, no, 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 we don't cut it out. It's too close and dangerous to the spinal cord. What we do is we take the skull and we open up the back of the skull like the flaps on the landing gear plane. And just enough, 
and cover it with that leather stuff on the that God put uh, over the skull. And then now the brain has more room in the skull, and everything goes back to normal. And then the body will dissolve the cyst on its own. It is amazing to do open to do brain surgery like that, and then to think that we were in Michigan, coming out to California so we can be with my dad. But then after my dad passed, after we had been as good a witness as we could, my son comes up with this malady discovered that the doctor said, you should have discovered this when you are in high school. Now you're here in graduate school? That's really weird. But God's timing is amazing. And then we were able to tell people that my brother happens to be an orthopedic surgeon practicing in San Francisco, and one of his friends happens to be a neurosurgeon, one of only three in the entire United States that specializes in the carry malformation. And my son was able to get the surgery done, and we were able to have him in our house during his recovery time. Well, when I told all my friends around the country and around the world that this is what God has done, it was an amazing opportunity to thank God in prayer as we all reacted to say, God is amazing. Now, when we live our lives as initiators, when the stories happen about the people that we are witnessing to and the people we are discipling and the impact we're making in the city of Houston, and Pastor Greg and the pastoral staff and the deacons and all the other leadership here at the city hear about what God is doing through us because we are burdened for the, for the millions of people that are moving to Houston. And, and I agree that the Justice City will be the fastest growing and the highest GNP with this amazing sense of, of oil and finance and commerce. But wouldn't it be amazing if Houston was also known as, wow, something, something spiritual is going on in Houston. People all over are starting to make this strong commitment to Jesus Christ. You should find out why all this is happening because there's a group of men in the city who love Jesus Christ so much that they're sharing that love with everyone they can find in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the family, in their clubs, every place they go. What would happen if all of us picked up that passion and made this opportunity so that our life can count for Jesus Christ and the kingdom could be impacted because of the people that we touch and no one else in this room will ever, ever come in contact with? And you multiply it by every one of us guys. What an amazing impact that maybe God could use all of us as men to be initiators in this amazing city that God is causing some amazing growth. Where this is now, in 2012, Houston is the most diverse city in the United States, ethnically. Surpassed New York in 2012. God is bringing the mission field to our city. Not just bringing an amazing growth. But he's bringing the mission. Bringing the mission field to our city. And can you imagine what it would be like for us to see people from all different ethnic backgrounds coming to know Jesus Christ? Amen. And then touching the lives of their relatives who are all over the world. And maybe because Houston is on the verge of becoming a great global city, to be absolutely amazed to watch the gospel being sent out from the world, to the world through the lives of people that are here in the city touched because of all of us. What a phenomenal opportunity we can make happen. And one of our big dreams is to make that happen on Thursday morning. We're not just having a men's study. Our men's Bible study is meant to fill our minds with intelligence and data and information. We want to study with an objective. 
so that every single week when we study the Word of God, we can go to our workplace, go to the people that we are touching and influencing. And we want to impact them for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We want to be able to figure out, what do I say now? How do I now live? How do I then give advice? What kind of counsel can I give? And then these people are going to wonder, why in the world are you so interested in us? Why in the world do you have such passion for life that you want to share? And we can just smile and say, look, let me tell you about this person that I know. It's been very special to me. His name is Jesus Christ. What a great opportunity that will be for all of us to impact the lives of other people around us. That's why we're going to meet on Thursday morning with that special objective. We've got an amazing passage of scripture here that we want to wrap up with, but our time is getting away from us. So let me just read this passage of scripture and find out if you have any questions. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and the love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you. You see the three words, this amazing trilogy that repeats itself so often in the New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. Hope is brought up here in verses 5 and 6, and finally that trio is brought to a completion. It is an amazing three-legged stool upon which our Christian vitality and enthusiasm all rest. That's what it means to be an opportunity maker. Not just an opportunity taker. That's good. Let's see if we can ramp it up even more. What kind of questions do you have? 6.30 to 7.30. Yes, sir. I started off with uh, Tai Chi, went to Lion's Fist, and finished up with American Kempo. I broke my big toe, broke a finger, chipped an elbow, and I thought, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> This was last year, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was a great experience because, you know, when you have children and if they all find different interests, you go three different directions. We have three kids. So we got all of our kids involved with martial arts. So we just went in one direction. So I studied it for them, too. And uh, it was great. Uh, our our uh, son was small for his age. Uh, my wife is only... Four foot, eleven and three quarters. She says she's five foot. I say four, eleven and three quarters. So our children are a little bit smaller, but they were really bright, so they advanced fast. But especially with boys, when you advance fast and you're small in stature, you get picked on. Mm-hmm. So we got picked on, and we said, "Okay, enough is enough." So we taught, brought him down to the dojo. He learned martial arts. The next time a bully uh, tried to corral him in a private place on a on a field trip, he had he he had that bully down on the ground. And we we taught our kids in martial arts. Remember now, no blood, no foul. Don't break anything, don't shed any blood, but just control. So we had this big bully down on the ground before the big bully knew what was going on. And after that, the bully became his friend. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing phenomenon for us as a family. It was just a great time for us as we grew up together. Any other questions? Um, what do you think they do, and most importantly, when we are talking to teachers, and we are not sure that that is going to take us away from the Lord, sure. how can we distinguish that? That balance and priority that they're going to deal with is a great, great workshop here at Friday. <laughs> and that's where wisdom comes in. 
we don't want to take everything that comes our way or else we're just absolutely going to be torn in all these different exactly. directions. Right. Yep. And so we know what our spiritual gift is. We walk in the spirit and we trust him for every opportunity. And we try to figure out that balance. My, one of my great ways to do that is I consult with Yvonne all the time. I say, honey, here are the things, here are the opportunities, what do you think? And she says, well, what do you think? And I tell her, she says, well, that's not good. Here's what else I'm thinking. She said, I like that one. No, 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 no. She says, oh, good, okay, good, good, good. So, what I, I learned, of course, we've been married now for 36 years, so I always threw out a really lousy one the first time. So, it gives the appearance that I'm really listening and thinking her advice. Yes, sir. You can't jump. How do you discern when you're acting out of your own? And effort, you know, you're you're pushing. You know, we we want to be progressive. We want to be proactive, reactive. But when you're making opportunities out of your own strength, instead of you know seeing where God's at work, and then yeah, I just I wrestle with that. Sure. One of the keys in in life, and Pastor Gray's going to get to it. You know, it's coming in the Book of Acts when the Holy Spirit actually stops Paul from going someplace, opens up another opportunity. I stopped something he's already begun. And uh, I, I know Pastor Greg's going to hit those things really, really well. So one of the things that, if you listen to Pastor Greg, one of the most amazing things is he begins every day when he wakes up, the first thing he reads is Scripture. And he wants to know what God wants for him. And he prays that God would give him uh, good leadership and good wisdom when he, uh, when he goes to work. Uh, those kinds of basic things to me are, man, that's gold. That advice he gives to us by his example that's the way we should do it. So often what we men do is we don't do the daily stuff. And we assume that because I knew this long ago, then I'm going to be able to have a discernment and the focus when those opportunities come. But it, it's got to begin with our beginning part of the day. It's got to be a part of our daily prayers we trust Him. So just match with Scripture and have some really good advisors around you. Uh, besides, if, if you're married and ask your wife, have some really good close friends if big decisions come up. Say, hey, what are you guys thinking? What, am I missing something? Because we all have blind spots. Among the men living as warriors, Goliath, um, you have protectors, providers, and pioneers. And pioneers, you have First Timothy 5, 11, and 12. Um, could you explain how that matches the pioneers? Because when I read it, it says, but refuse to enroll younger widows when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Is that the right scripture on the slide? Boy, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Oh, six eleven, not five. Okay. But you, man of God, flee from all this. That is the bad things he said. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you called when you made your good confession. That makes more sense. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Man, did you hear what Fong said? La <laughs> I think the Christian in the Arab countries, they're practicing this already. They pray more, they pray to God. It's not to our power. It's very Tai Chi. Right now, they're being attacked by the rebels. They are archivists. And they cut burn the church. They cut off the head of Jesus Christ, the statue, it's Catholic, it doesn't matter, it's all the same. But they took the opportunity. It's like when someone strikes you, you punch this way and then you punch it. Mm -hmm. So they open the door of their churches. 
and the Muslims, they don't understand what's happening. Why not religion repeat it? And the Christian religion is passion and love. So they open the door, there are more and more people coming to church, much more than in the past. Mm. So then we just talk. It is happening over there. Mm. It's also happening in Egypt. Mm. So don't depend on our ability, but depend on God. Mm. Mm. Very good. Thank you. And that's been a pattern all over the world during, during the time when South Africa was in the, the great times of uh, apartheid. Uh, rebels went into a church and threw grenades into the worship service. And uh, some of the godliest men jumped on those grenades with their bodies to save and protect a lot of other people. And it wasn't just the tragedy of that particular event, but it's what happened afterwards. After that particular attack, on the very next Sunday, uh, the, the very next day, the leaders of the church put a full-page ad in the paper and said to the rebels who came and attacked our church, we forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ. The, all the Muslims that they left in And the Muslims said, if the terrorists want to harm you, they have to walk over our dead body. Amazing. So it's not just the pain, guys, because when we take the chance to go out and serve the Lord, we will get hit. Don't let the hit or the pain make you quit. I think what we learn here is from what you said. The best strategy is to attack. Don't sit here, go out to preach. Share the gospel. Make those opportunities happen. I'm confused because you're saying, okay, if God wants you to do something, you can get where the door is open. But you're also saying to resist the pain if you're experiencing pain. Can you distinguish those two? Sure. There will always be hardship. Okay. Suffering is going to come. The scriptures make it very clear, if you want to live a righteous life, you will suffer. The human way and the world's way is, well, if we face that pain, obviously what you're doing is wrong, just don't do it anymore. Uh, you know, it's like the old story about, you, know, you go to the doctor and say, hey, my arm hurts, well, why is your arm hurt? Well, every time I play golf, the doctor says, don't play golf. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's funny, and sometimes that's true, sometimes that's common sense. There's also reality about spiritual things, when we go off and do things, we will experience pain. That doesn't mean we go off and be offensive, and then because we're offensive, people then call us names and say, oh, good, I must be living a life of righteousness. Yeah. There's common sense in the way in which we balance that whole thing, and uh, that's where the, the balance comes in, and that's where the discernment and the wisdom that we talked about before must come in. Good question. One more question? Yes, I have one. I'm with Ed, we're down at Siena, launching a new church down there in that part of town. And so it's one of the key things that we're really trying to figure out is how to recycle uh, in, in areas of town where there's just so much competition for time. People just really don't see the relevance of church. And so you're talking about the, um, you know, Houston is such a, a fast-growing city with people from all over the world. How does it look in your your realm, what you're doing, your body study? How do you teach uh, and disciple amazing thing about us guys is we want immediate results. I mean, we want the touchdown in the first play. And we want the run back on the kickoff. You know, this, this business of throwing five-yard passes, man, oh man, let's just get it done. And uh, we do our evangelism and our relationships with non-Christians the same way. We want to dump our entire load in, in an elevator speech in the first 30 seconds we get a chance. But the reality is, is we don't want to come across as some nutcase and some extremist. 
and from a religious person who only wants to talk about the Bible. We want to be the best worker in the office. We want to be the most helpful worker in the office. And we want to go beyond that and build relationships. In almost every discipleship group that I'm working in, I just keep telling the guy, wait for the opportunity. Because everyone goes through crises. And when someone goes through crisis, they will not have enough friends around them who are going to be able to help them or know what to do. But we as Christians who know the Word of God and have been trained and going through all these things, we will know when those moments come. And they will have nobody when suddenly the wife wants a divorce, when their kids are being disrespectful, when suddenly some disaster occurs like, man, my dad's dying, he just got cancer, and I don't know what to do. What, what, what is this thing about life and death? When crisis comes, they will turn to someone they've learned to trust. So when, when everything is going fast and furious, they, they don't want to talk to someone who wants to talk to them about their sin. They, they just want to get ahead and they want to make advances and they want to be successful. But if someone can come alongside and they're going to kind of pay attention through the peripheral vision, wow, that guy, that guy's a great worker. That guy really helped me. You know, I, I almost tried to do him dirty, but the guy just, he blew it off and didn't, didn't hold it against me. And he actually helped me in return. All of a sudden, we're starting to live our life in such a way that they become to a point where they trust us. When the trust is there, and the inevitable crisis, and it will be there, the inevitable crisis comes, they will turn to us, or we can turn and reach out to them. And it's those amazing moments when we get a chance to be a light. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the message from the 2013 All-In Men's Retreat hosted by Houston's First Baptist Church. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. Pray that you have a great day.